Good morning, everyone. So good to have you with us. A couple of us have already welcomed you here. And I'm sorry if my voice sounds just a little bit different, uh, but I was fighting through some struck throat the last couple of days, tested negative for COVID, so uh, don't worry about that. But um, if it cracks, I'm sorry, I apologize, but we're gonna try to make it through the service today, okay? So while you're sitting there engaged, you can maybe pray that I have a strong voice to be able to deliver this message, okay? Again, really good to have you here. Today's the eighth and final installment of the Letters from Jesus series. And typically, uh, right about now, I would ask, have you enjoyed this series so far? And I sure hope that you have. But I think a more accurate or a more telling question would be, has the series inspired you and has it lit a fire in your soul? Because that's what we were after from the very beginning. When we started this series back in January, it was our desire to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches today to actually receive a fresh revelation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because that's what John the Beloved, John the Apostle received. He received something new and something fresh. And so for the past couple of months now, that's been our challenge, that we would receive something special from the Lord. And I really appreciated what Pastor Tyler had to say just a couple of moments ago because he said just that, that we could expect God to move in a very specific and special way today. And so for the last two months now, we've been looking at these letters found in Revelation chapters two and three, where Jesus writes seven personal messages, seven letters to the seven churches. Jesus dictated the letters. John, who was a prisoner on the island of Patmos, he wrote them down and he delivered them to the pastors. And so far in this series, we've looked at Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, and last week, Philadelphia. Today, what I want to do is talk about the last of the seven churches, the church of Laodicea. And as we begin, I'd like to make this comment. In his message to all seven churches, as Jesus was writing out and dictating these seven letters, he pretty much followed the same pattern. And after he said a couple of things, uh, he said to each of the churches, there's some things about you that I want to commend you on. And then there's some things that I want to correct you about. In other words, Jesus passed along some compliments. He said, I want to thank you for being strong in this area. And I want to thank you for uh, being uh, ex uh, excellent in this aspect of ministry. So he offered compliments to the church and then he offered some instructions or some advice on how they could get better in some of the weak areas. And again, he did this with all of the letters except for Laodicea. In writing his letter to Laodicea, Jesus did not pass along one accolade, not a single word of praise, nothing good at all about this particular church. 
And I hate to say this, I hesitate to say it because it's certainly not the case here at Community Christian Church, but many modern commentaries and uh, Bible experts, they believe that the 21st century church, the church in existence today, our church, not Community Christian Church, but the church at large, closely mirrors the Laodicean church. In fact, we are a lot like that church, according to a lot of experts. So let's talk about this. And we're going to begin in uh, Revelation chapter 3. Just going to read verses 14 through 16 right now. Are you with me? All right. Last church, Church of Laodicea, to the angel or to the pastor of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. How many of you are getting the picture here that Jesus is saying to everybody, I'm the one in charge. I call the shots. I am the ruler of God's creation. And I know your deeds. He said that to all the churches. I I see what's going on in your church. I, I know what's happening. And I know that you are neither cold or hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. All right, let's pause right there for a moment. How many know this is pretty strong and direct language? And it is given license to blunt and overly aggressive preachers to have a field day with this wording. In fact, over the years, I've heard the church at Laodicea referred to as vomit and many other words very close in meaning, words that I don't want to repeat today. In fact, a California preacher, David Jeremiah by name, in his book, The Seven Churches of Revelation, he makes reference to the Laodicean church as the disgusting church loathsome and undetestable in God's eyes. And yes, this is a definite and immediate call to action. This is a rebuke. This is a correction. But I do not think that Jesus was referring to his church as a disgusting or a detestable church. Because in the very first lesson, the introductory installment of this series, I told you that Jesus loves the church. He died for the church. He shed his blood for the church. He refers to the church as his bride. And I don't know too many decent husbands who call their wives disgusting. And so I don't think that this is what Jesus meant. But the language is here, and so let's talk about it for a little bit. And again, as I'm discussing uh, some of these facts and research that I want to share with you, I want to thank, I want to go on the record and thank my good friend, Pastor Tony Cook, for his valuable insight here. All right, in Bible times, and we're talking about Laodicea here now, Laodicea was one of three ancient cities all grouped together in a little tri-city cluster located in what was called the Lycus Valley. And I have a couple of maps here that I want to show you. This first map, 
you've seen before. I, I, I showed you this map because I wanted you to know that the seven churches of Revelation, they were actual churches. They weren't figurative churches. They were places that existed. Real cities, real churches, pastors and congregations. And remember I told you uh, in lesson number one or lesson number two, I can't remember, that if you wanted to visit all of these churches, you could because the Romans were good at building roads and they built a road that connected every one of these cities and churches. And if you started at Ephesus and you wanted to visit the churches and you drove your car in a clockwise direction, you would come to the churches in the exact order that they're listed in the scripture. And the last church that you would get to is the church where? At Laodicea. All right, let's look at that second map. This is a close-up of Laodicea. And I want you to see that these are the three little cities that were all grouped together. Colossae was a city about 10 miles to the southeast of Laodicea. And you should know Colossae, right? Why should you know Colossae? Well, because Paul started a church in Colossae and he wrote a letter, it's in the New Testament, the letter to the Colossians. He wrote another letter to the church of Colossae. Anybody remember that one? I heard it. Philemon, that little one chapter 25 verse letter to his good buddy Philemon, Paul wrote it to this guy here in Colossae. So, ten, and a half, 10 miles to the southeast of Laodicea was Colossae, and then about six miles to the north of Laodicea was this city called Heropolis. And all three of these cities were booming cities. They were cities that you would want to live your life and, and raise a family. The economy was good. Everything was good about these cities. But among the three cities, Laodicea was by far the wealthiest and the most prominent of the three. It would be like Birmingham or West Bloomfield or Gross Point, if you understand what I'm trying to say here. They had a lot of money in Laodicea. I mean, they had some cash. There was a gold exchange in Laodicea, big banking structures and centers. They had multiple emerging and thriving, uh, highly successful businesses, and there were manufacturing endeavors. And so these three little cities, uh, it was a great place to live, but if you had to pick between the three, you would definitely want to live in Laodicea. Unfortunately, their wealth and their success caused them to be a little bit arrogant. Sometimes the two go hand in hand. And because of their arrogance, because they knew that everything was going good for them and that they were in a very good position compared to some of the other churches, Jesus gave them some words of instruction in Revelation chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Uh, and it goes beyond instruction. It's actually not kind what Jesus said to them. He said, you say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. This is what the people of Laodicea said. This was their testimony. 
We're rich, we're wealthy, we're in need of nothing. We, we don't have a care in the world. Jesus said, that's what you say. That's what you think. But I have a little bit different impression. Jesus said you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Ugh. Again, very strong language. And Jesus was speaking figuratively here. From a financial or physical need standpoint, there were no problems in Laodicea. The people that were going to the church, they, they, they didn't have any financial difficulties. I mean, everybody probably could have underwritten the budget without much difficulty. So it wasn't that Jesus was addressing their financial situation or how well that they were doing business-wise. He was speaking spiritually. And he was saying to them that when it comes to spiritual matters, you are indifferent and you are full of apathy. Do you remember the exact word that Jesus used? Lukewarm. Remember that one? We just read it a couple moments ago in Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Jesus said, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit or spew or vomit you out of my mouth. Now, stay with me for just a minute. Just a few moments ago, I told you that to the southeast of Laodicea was this little city called Colossae. Colossae was situated at the base of a mountain. And this particular mountain, Mount Cadmus, it was snow-capped for the majority of the year. Probably 10, maybe even 11 months out of the year, the mountain was snow-capped. And this whole weather pattern set up in the elevation of Mount Cadmus, it produced several cold water springs in Colossae. Throughout Asia Minor, Colossae was known for their fresh and their pure and their ice-cold drinking water. And it was refreshing, it was invigorating, and it was available most all during the year. Let's say 11 months out of the year, they had this ice-cold water. And then six miles to the north, what city was there? Heropolis. And unlike Colossae, Heropolis was famous for its hot mineral springs. People from the entire region, they flocked to Heropolis to enjoy a hot bath. In fact, in some places in Heropolis, the water was as hot as you could possibly stand it. It was like a natural jacuzzi hot tub. And check this out. This is the truth. Even today, people from all over the world, they visit this part of Turkey to experience the hot water springs of ancient Heropolis. So, in Colossae, ice cold, fresh, mountain fresh, purified drinking water. Delicious, tasteful, <laughs> wonderful water. In Heropolis, 
hot water springs, to take a hot bath, to bring soothing and medicinal properties to a tired and a weary body. And then there was Laodicea. And believe it or not, with all of their money and all of their big banks and all of the wealth that they had there and all of the, uh, uh, the business people, as smart and brilliant as they were, they had no water. There was no water supply in Laodicea, no water supply system of their own. In order for Laodicea to have any water, they had to pipe the water from Heropolis down to Laodicea. That was a distance of about six miles. And from the time that the water, that hot water in Heropolis made its way down to Laodicea, guess what? Lukewarm, tepid, pukey kind of water. And I would say that lukewarm water is probably good for most everything except for drinking. And according to history, the lukewarm water that came from Heropolis to Laodicea oftentimes made the people sick. And they refused to drink it. And they were frustrated. And they complained to Rome about it all the time. But there was nothing that they could do about it because there was no way that they could get water in Laodicea unless they piped it down from Heropolis. And so the Laodiceans, they were extremely jealous of their neighbors. Cold water in Colossae, hot water in Heropolis, pukey, lukewarm water, in Laodicea. And in his letter to the Laodicean church, here's what Jesus said. I know your deeds. They're neither cold or hot. I wish they were either one or the other. And when Jesus said that to them, when Jesus wrote those words, the Laodiceans knew precisely what he was talking about. You see, when we preach this message, and I've done this myself over the years, typically we convey the idea that if you're hot when it comes to your relationship with God, then that means you're on fire for God, that you're devoted to him, you're committed to God, and you're doing everything that God would want you to do. You're attending church, and you're volunteering your time, you're serving, you're giving back. You know, you're, you're like the perfect Christian. But then if you're cold... That typically means that you're not doing what you should be doing. Maybe you're, you're backslidden or even in a sinful condition. So hot means you're on fire for God. Cold means you're probably not where you should be. And lukewarm was somewhere in the middle. But that's not how the Laodiceans interpreted the words that Jesus was speaking to them. That's how we have preached this message. But that's not what Jesus meant. What Jesus was talking about and how the Laodiceans interpreted it was, good, uh, uh, cold was good. We say cold is no good. We say cold means you're far from God. But that's not what Jesus was talking about. Jesus was saying cold in Colossae, that was good. It was refreshing. It was invigorating water. You, you want what Colossae had to offer. In Heropolis, 
the hot water, it was good. So cold was good, hot was good, but lukewarm was not good. Lukewarm was useless and pointless and pretty much not good for anything. And again, the Laodiceans, they understood that language. They understood that illustration that Jesus was making. I want you to think about this. When Jesus said in the scripture, I wish that you were hot or cold, he wasn't saying, I wish you were for me or against me. He didn't mean, I wish you were on fire or backslidden. I mean, why would he say that? That makes no sense. Jesus wouldn't want us to be for him or against him. Jesus was saying, I want you to be useful wherever you are. I want you to be productive. I want you to use the God-given talents that he has provided for you to be effective in the kingdom of God and to make a difference. It doesn't matter if you live in Colossae, in Heropolis, or wherever else you live. I want you to be useful. I want you to understand how great your God is and how much he desires for you to utilize the plan that he's made and he's prepared for you. Jesus said, I want you to understand you can make a difference. Every single one of you. Not nine out of 10, 10 out of 10. Because God has given you gifting and God has put himself inside of us. We, we have the living God, the Holy Spirit of God, the creative power of God working inside of us. And you can be different. But the indifferent and lukewarm spiritual temperature of the Laodicean church caused Jesus to feel the same way that the Laodiceans felt when they drank the warm water from Heropolis, a little sick to their stomach. And so Jesus said to them, here's what I want you to do. I want you to change your mindset. I, I want you to modify and adjust your perspective. I want you to take a long look at, at who you really are in my eyes. Jesus said, you think you're okay. Whether you compare yourself to some other believer or whether you just evaluate yourself based on how you're living your life, you think you're good with God. You think the relationship is okay. You think you're in right standing with God. But Jesus said, I want you to know you're wretched, you're pitiful, you're poor, you're blind, and you're spiritually naked, all five. And after dropping that crushing blow on the Laodiceans, after putting that in print, what does Jesus do? Does he say to this church, that's it, I'm done with you? You've crossed the line? You're destined for destruction? There's no way back for you? I'm going to remove your lampstand. 
There's nothing, any, there's nothing that I can do for you anymore. Is that what Jesus said? Is that what Jesus does? No, he goes on to offer them a remedy for their dry and spiritually complacent condition. And here's what Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. And this is so Jesus. For the people who think that Jesus speaks harshly to his church, and to the people who thinks that Jesus is unkind and impatient and angry, listen to what he says to the church that he just called wretched and pitiful and blind and poor and naked. He said this, those whom I love, I rebuke or correct. And those whom I love, I discipline. So be earnest and repent. Because here I am. Sound like a God that doesn't care? I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, and they, that person, will eat with me. Now, friends, we love to use this passage right here in Revelation chapter 3 evangelistically, and rightly so, because God's always knocking on the door of the unsaved. He's always in search mode for people who are far from him. In fact, the scripture says he's long-suffering, he's kind. He's not willing that any should perish. I mean, you know, he wants everyone to find salvation. But this passage that we just read right here in Revelation chapter 3 where Jesus is standing at the door knocking, it's not written to the unbeliever. It's written to the church at Laodicea. Jesus is talking to Christians here. Jesus is asking believers who think they are right with God to open the door because there's separation between us and him. In fact, everything that we have been talking about for the last two months or eight weeks, all of the scripture that we have been reading from, the book of Revelation chapters 2 and 3, they're letters to the church, not to the world. It was Jesus making appeal to you and to me to listen very carefully. And such is the case here. He's talking to the church. He's saying to the Laodicean church, and he's saying it to us too, with all of your flaws and all of your imperfections and all of your failures, do I have to name the five again? Please tell me I don't. He says you're only one door jam away from total and complete fellowship and intimacy with the Father. It's all it takes is one step. Jesus is saying, I'm standing at the door, I'm knocking. All you have to do is open the door. It's all it takes. I am here for you. And I want you to realize how much I'm willing to give you if you would just be serious in your repentance, if you'll be earnest, and if you make that move toward God. I'm here. Jesus says, I'm here. This is his appeal to the church at Laodicea 
where he had not one good thing to say about the church. I love you so much. I'm here. Now, we're going to close out this service and this entire series and song in just a moment. But before we do that, I want to tell you one more story. This story is found in the Bible. It's a very popular parable that Jesus told. In fact, with the exception of probably the parable of the Good Samaritan, most people know this parable uh, and most people have heard it. It's called the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the lost son. It's a lengthy one, so I'm going to ask you to please bear with me and, and try to hang in here with me for the last couple of minutes. Let's read this because I'm going to talk about it in just a couple of minutes. All right, can you hang with me? Yes. All right, Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. Jesus said a man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. Can't wait for you to die. Give me my money now. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. So you see right here that both the boys got paid, not just the younger son. He divided his wealth. A few days later, after this younger son packed up all of his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all of his money in wild living. About that time that his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods that he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. No one gave him a thing. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am, dying of hunger. Then the younger son said, I will go home. Do what now? I will go home. The younger, says, uh, the younger son says, I'm going to go home. I'm going to go home to my father. I'm going to say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with love and compassion. The father came running. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. And his son said to, his, his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf that we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, when he did what now? When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants, what's going on? Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf, and we're celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry, and he wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, all these years I've slaved for you, and you never once ref refused to do a single thing. Oh, pardon me. I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this, 
no good, rotten son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, look, dear son, you have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. If I could, I would change the title of this parable. I can't, and I won't. But if I could, I would. And I would entitle it, A Tale of Two Sons. Not A Tale of Two Cities, that one's already taken. A Tale of Two Sons. And the reason I would call it that is because both of these boys, both of these sons had some major issues to deal with. The first son listed in the story, which was the younger son, he had a bad case of entitlement. He felt like his dad owed him something. And so he demanded that his father pay him his inheritance. He took the inheritance prematurely, and he spent it, every single dime of it. And once he blew through all the money and found himself in a pigsty, he was steeped in filth as low as he could possibly go. But then he came to his senses, and he decided to go back to his father. And did his father reject him? No, his father didn't reject him. His father embraced him, and he, it actually restored him to the place of honor that he once had. But when son number one, the oldest son, second son in the story, when the older son heard what happened, uh, how did it make him feel? He was ticked. Do you know why he was ticked? Because just like the younger son, the older son had a bad case of entitlement. And he thought that he was better than his younger son who was always making mistakes. And I know that because he basically said to his dad, Dad, you don't get it. I'm like the perfect son. I've never done anything wrong. Everything you've asked me to do, I've done it for you. There's not one thing that you could ever accuse me of doing. And you just refuse to acknowledge and recognize how great I am. That was the attitude of the second boy or the, the older son. And how did the father respond to that? Most dads might have been a little bit argumentative. Most dads might have engaged in a little bit of debate, but he didn't. He treated the older son the same way he treated the younger son, and he said, dear son, I love you. I appreciate you. I acknowledge how loyal you've been, and everything that I have belongs to you, but we should be happy because of your brother. Now come into the house Come in and join the celebration. How many know both of these sons needed the grace and mercy of God? They both did. Not just the younger son and not just the older son. Now the younger son, he was guilty of riotous living. 
And his sin was out there for everyone to see. There's no denying his intentions. I mean, he squandered the money on prostitutes. He lived immorally. You would look at his life and you would say, that was a sinful boy. The older son, a little more subtle with his sin, because he kept it in his heart. He had arrogance and pride and self-righteousness. He despised the fact that his brother couldn't get it together. He criticized his father every chance he got. And he basically thought, I am the epitome of perfection. And how did the father respond to both of these two sons? With love and acceptance. And he invited them both to come into the house and to enjoy a time of fellowship and intimacy and celebration. The father took these two sons at polar opposites. One where the sin was so obvious, the other one where the sin was a little bit hidden. But both of them having issues. And he invited them to come home. He invited them to come back to the place that they once knew, the place of honor, the place of intimacy with God, the place where, where they could enjoy all that the Father had for them. Don't look now, friends, but all seven letters to the seven churches give us the exact same message as Jesus appeals to his church to return to me and come home. In every one of those letters, he said, you've done some good things, except for Laodicea. You've done some good things, but you've been distracted. And there's been some parts of the world that has gotten a, a hold of you. Repent of those things and come back to me. Come home. And in this last letter, the letter to the church at Laodicea, his last shot at it, Jesus renews this appeal. And he says, would you return to me? Would you acknowledge you are not right? You're not as spiritual as you think you are. And I'm standing at the door with everything that you need. And I'm asking you to open the door. And we might think, well, that's for the sinner. That's for the one who's out there doing all kinds of things. But it's not, friend. It's for some of us right, self-righteous, arrogant people who think we have it all together and we're better than everyone else. It's for all of us. And if you feel the tap on your shoulder, if you feel the knock on the door of your heart, if something's stirring in your soul right now, if there's a thought in your mind, it's God saying, it's me. I'm the one that is drawing you. I'm the one who's pleading with you to come to me. And so my last appeal is that you would not delay, that you would not come up with an excuse, that you would not put it off, that you would not justify it away, but that you would do what the Father is asking you to do. Not come walking, come running. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we're so thankful for your love. Over and over again, we see it. And here in the book of Revelation, 
in chapters 2 and 3 as we read these letters to the churches, all we see is a loving Savior appealing to His church to come to that place of knowing You and serving You. Lord, You want the very best for us. You have a plan, Lord. You initiated that plan 2,000 years ago when You left planet Earth. And you gave a command to your disciples to not only love one another, but to go into all the world and share that love with the people around them, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that you commanded us. Lord, we can't do that unless our light is burning brightly. And that's what you're calling the church to right now. You're calling us to come back to that place, Lord, of knowing you, serving you, getting rid of some of the distractions, shedding some of the weights and the sins that keep us from running this race. And Lord, you've been good to us the last few months. You've spoken clearly. And I believe, Lord God, you're doing something deep in the hearts of your people. Continue to light this fire and let it burn because we want to live for you today, Lord. We want to be the church that you've called us to be, the bride without spot or wrinkle, holy in your eyes, Lord. Not wretched, not pitiful, not lukewarm, but useful. pray you would move, Lord, in these closing moments of this service. Pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. As I was thinking about how to close out our series, I've been at it now for eight weeks, I asked Phil and the team to put this song together and I appreciate all the work that went into making it possible it's not an easy song to do some of you will recognize the song I wanted this song because it says a couple things it says from now on and it starts now not next week not next month not when I get my act together not after I can pay off my debt, not after I can fix this relationship. It starts right now. And I'm going to do it from now on. <coughs> I'm making this commitment to God and it's not going to change. Whatever I decide to do, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it not because anybody's asking me to do it, but because I feel it in my heart. And I feel that the Lord is calling me to change. It's been hard coming. The Lord has been speaking to me. The Holy Spirit's been telling me some things. Some things have to go. Some things I have to add. And I've been putting it off. I know it's coming. I want to do it today, starting right now. And I want to do it from now on. That's the commitment that God's looking for today. 
sorry, I'm having a little trouble. You know, this past week I was previewing some video. I mentioned this to you a couple of weeks ago that we celebrate 30 years anniversary this year. And so I was looking at some of our past video, some of the things that we've done in the past 30 years. And I was inspired to the point of becoming emotional when I saw how the church, our church, responded to needs when the Lord was speaking. Whenever we were trying to raise a little bit of money, whenever we were buying something or building something, and we would rally together and, and we felt like the Lord was in it, there was such a wonderful response on the part of the people. Typically, everybody was in. If we could do it, if we could afford it, people were volunteering, they were serving, they were giving. I, I was watching this past video and I was just moved. I, I, I could not believe how the Lord has blessed us. Well, we're not building anything right now. And we're not asking for any money. But the Spirit of the Lord is building His church. And He's building His church in our hearts. And change needs to come. We have to acknowledge that what we have been doing thus far is not God's best for us. But He wants to get us to where His best is. He doesn't just tell us we're missing it and leave us on our own. He gives us advice. He gives us counsel. He tells us, this is what you need to do. And I believe that there's some people here, ever since we've been starting this new year, even during the prayer and fasting time, you've been waiting for me to say this so that you could come running to this altar. Well, today's your day, because I want those of you who feel this, what I'm talking about, to come and join me here as we sing one more song, one more uh, closing song to this series. Just, just if you're feeling this in your heart right now, don't hesitate, don't wait for someone else to come. Just come. Come home. This is the place where God is calling us to. He's speaking to us. He's standing at the door. You say, my, well, my door's wide open. Well, look at it again. That's what I'm going to ask you to do. Well, you know, I'm serving the Lord. I'm doing the best that I can. Well, he wants you to do a little bit better, and he's going to give you the grace and all the empowerment that you need. And you don't have to come forward if this is not you. But I know that there's a group of people here that want to move in God like we never have before. Some great things are on the horizon. The Lord wants to start moving among us in miraculous ways. He wants us to speak to needs and, and see those needs come to life, to lay our hands on the sick and let the sick recover, to speak words and watch people, watch situations change. God wants that to happen. But he's got to have our hearts. Starts with the heart. And so, Father, we thank you. We respond to you today, Lord. Deliver us from the tragedy of hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit speak and rejecting it. Father, I pray our ears would be open to hear. Our hearts would be open to receive. You said this people, they draw close to me. But their hearts are far from me.
Lord, we pray for the church of Jesus Christ. We pray for our brothers and sisters around the world. Lord, you're saying the same thing. It's the same spirit speaking the same thing. I, I, I turn on message after message and hear the Holy Spirit of God is drawing. The Holy Spirit is bringing us to a place of acknowledging that we need to be earnest in our repentance. Something has to change to knock us off dead center. We're not passing judgment. We're not saying we're a bunch of bad people. That's not what you said to your church. You said whom you love, you chasten whom you love, you correct, you rebuke, you discipline, and you move us on, Lord. And that's what we want, Lord. I pray for every person here, Lord. I pray for the commitments that are being made this morning. I pray, Lord God, for the addictions to be broken. I pray, Lord, for relationships to be healed. I pray, Lord, for sin to be gone. I pray for your holiness to hit us, Lord, like never before. Thank you for your grace, Lord God. You embrace us. You embrace both sons, the older and the younger son in, the, in that parable. You embrace them both. You call them into the house. You said, come, let's celebrate. That's where you're calling us to, to that place of celebration. Father, do something deep within us today. We do not want to leave here the same. We do not want the same baggage. We want to leave it here at the altar, Lord. We're making decisions for you right now, the things that you've been convicting us of. Lord, give us the power right now to overcome these things. Your word says there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We thank you for that, Lord. This is not about shaming or guilting anyone, Lord. We want to be free. We want to be free to serve you, free to honor you, free to worship you. Lord, we want you to move among us. Holy Spirit, we need you. We know it's not by might or power, but it's by your spirit. Thank you, God, for what you're doing in our hearts and what you're doing in our church and what you're doing in churches throughout the United States and the world. You are getting us ready, Lord. We want to be ready. We choose to open the door. We open the door, Lord, wider than we ever have before. We invite you, Holy Spirit of God, yes, Lord. to lead us. Yes. Lead us, church. Lead this church, Lord.